Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we have for you an interview with Lucy Tan, the author of What We Were Promised. Okay, so I saw the cover of this book long before I knew what it was about, and oh my goodness, I wanted to read it based off the cover. Yes, I am that person, no shame. It is glorious. You know, I mean, book designers, I feel like they're creating a new art form, really. And I know I sound like I'm joking. I'm not joking. I think it's so beautiful what they're doing. It's not just a piece of marketing now. It's gorgeous. I know. And I really appreciate the perspective in this book, too. And we're going to talk about it a little bit more in the interview. But it's the story of a Chinese family who moves from China to America for 10 years and then back to Shanghai. And so that's a perspective that, as we talk about in the interview, doesn't really often make it to novels. And so it was really refreshing and educating and just insightful. And I I really enjoyed learning about that whole process and that whole culture. Yeah. And when I read it, I felt like it was a perspective like you said, that we just don't see enough of. And it's kind of expanding your worldview and your knowledge of the world and like what happens. And I know to most probably people who might have similar stories, this is very normal. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just something that we need to read more about, honestly, as as Western people, as, you know, Americans. I, I was pretty thrilled to have a chance to read this. And it's her debut. So congratulations to Lucy Tan. Yeah, props to her. But you don't want to hear us talk about it. So let's go ahead and listen to our conversation with Lucy Tan about her novel, What We Were Promised. So we are here with Lucy Tan, the author of What We Were Promised. Welcome to the podcast, Lucy. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We were so excited to get our hands on a copy of your book before it came out, and we both absolutely loved it. Thank you. That's so good to hear. So this is your first book. This is your debut. And I love watching you on uh, social media. And like when your book first uh, came in, like the finished copy and you opened it. So can you tell us a little bit about your publishing journey and how you came to publish your first book? Yeah, you know, I feel extremely lucky with regards to my publishing journey because I think it happened relatively quickly for me once I got to grad school. So I've always loved writing um, and I always thought that I wanted to publish a book. But it wasn't until 2013 that I applied to grad school. So I'd been out of school a couple years. I spent a couple years in China, which is where a lot of, I guess, the um, material from uh, that go- that went into this book um, sort of came from. Um, And I went to grad school, and it was a two-year program at the University of Wisconsin, and I wrote the first draft during those two years. And then uh, when I was in the program, I found my agent, and shortly after, we were able to sell it. And now, fast forward two years, it's coming out in less than a month, and I couldn't be more excited. That's exciting. Yeah. And I mean, it just sounds, I love hearing how books come to be. I'm very into like the whole process of it. And so that's pretty cool. I mean, was that, do you feel like that comparatively speaking, was that pretty fast for you or was that just, I mean, the norm from what you've heard from other writers? Um, I think there's a really big range. Um, I have heard of books sort of sitting inside, you know, people's minds and hearts for a very long time, years and years before it comes out. And then there are other times where it's super fast. And a lot of people, you know, you hear stories of them selling um, a book on the first 50 pages. For me, I had everything written before I sold the book. So maybe it's sort of in between. 
Um, but it felt both fast and slow for me. It felt fast because by the time we sent it to publishers, I was like, this is not ready. I feel like there's so much more work that needs to be done. Um, but at the same time, once it's sold, it's two years before it actually comes out. So there's so much time that I didn't realize I would get to have with um, the manuscript. Mm-hmm. And you said that you spent some time in China. Like, did you go there particularly to research for this book or did the book come out of your time there? No, I didn't. So I actually went as a fresh graduate from college and I really just wanted to get life experience. I knew that I I loved New York. I went to school in New York, but I knew that if I stayed in New York and got a job, I just wouldn't leave for 10 years. So I really Mm. wanted to go home. Um, Well, my home at that time was sort of, I don't know if I really had one. My parents were living in Shanghai and they said, you know, I should come on over and sort of see what it was like over there. And so I went to China and I held a lot of different odd jobs and I was writing on the side and thinking about law school. So it was this moment of confusion, but also a lot of growth for me. And um, I think out of that grew, I guess, um, what eventually became what we were promised, but I didn't get a chance to put it to paper until uh, a few years later. That's really awesome. So before we get talking too much about the book, could you describe what we were promised for our listeners? Sure. So what we were promised is set in contemporary Shanghai in a luxury hotel. And it's a story surrounding a family called the Zhens. They are Chinese-American expats. So they have spent many years in America, but they're Chinese by birth and they're returning home to Shanghai, which is this incredible metropolis, um, which has changed so much in the past 20 years. And the, the novel is set in 2010. So when, they're, when they arrive there, a couple things happen one summer. One thing is that a bracelet goes missing from the wife's hotel room. And uh, sorry, it's, it's a hotel room, but it's also where they live. So a bracelet goes missing, and she believes that it was taken by one of the housekeepers um, that worked at the hotel. So that's a point of tension. The second thing is that the husband's long-lost brother shows up back in town. And so from these two incidents unravels this whole kind of web of um, secrets. And it's told from the point of view of the couple that lives in the hotel, as well as their housekeeper, who then becomes their nanny. So it's sort of a upstairs-downstairs family drama. And I really enjoyed that contrast between the two parts of the story, the contrast between the Jens and their their nanny. Yeah, I thought it was a really great way to contrast their, their lives and like how many different lives one could live in Shanghai. Yeah, and that was one of the things that sort of struck me as very memorable during my time there. It was just, you know, because I think China just a few decades ago, it was, you know, during the Cultural Revolution, it was just a place where everybody was striving to be. Everybody kind of came from the same background. And now with changing economic policies, that's just not true anymore. And you have the rich and you have the poor and you have people trying to figure out how to to navigate a country with um, different class systems. I feel especially recently, maybe it's just because we've been doing the podcast for the last few years, but I see we've read a lot of books about immigrants or expats coming to America. Uh, But what made you 
want to write a book about the Zhen family returning home to Shanghai? Yeah, I think that there, well, I sort of imagine this book as a a reimagination of the American dream. So we do hear a lot of stories about people coming to America and wanting to strike it rich or wanting to become successful. I sort of imagine this book as a reimagining of the American dream. So whereas we have a lot of literature um, about immigrants coming to America and sort of fitting into the system and taking advantage of it. This is the story of what happens when you have immigrants who have made their success in China, but then they move back to their homeland. And it's sort of about how, what are the ways in which they can sort of take their success and reinvest it into the countries they're from. And I love that different perspective of just kind of turning that idea, like you said, the reimagining of American dream. It's like you're turning that idea on its head and almost doing like a thought experiment, what it'd be like if they return home and what's that like? And I feel like we just don't hear that story um, as often as we should. Yeah, I think people's perception of China oftentimes is a place that is kind of lagging behind in technology, in, you know, in, I guess, different measures of wealth. And that just isn't true anymore. And I wanted to show a side of China that's emerging. And you do write about Shanghai so beautifully. And I I loved the cover, too. And I found myself flipping back to the cover as you were describing different parts of the skyline and different parts of the city. Because I was like, yeah. wait, wait, I want to see this. Um, so in, it's almost as if Shanghai itself is a character in the story, just because of how everyone relates to it and like the backdrop that it provides. So was that like an intentional decision on your part to make the city a character? Or did it just happen to come out of the story in that way? That's an interesting question. I don't think I intended for China to to be a character in the story, but I I think it was sort of inevitable because the the novel is so much about how China is changing so quickly. And it's funny that you say that about the cover because that cover from 2010, that skyline is not what it looks like anymore because there's even more buildings. Yeah. Um, and my friends who have seen the cover, who lived in Shanghai with me, they're like, oh, this is not current. And I was like, no, it's not current. It's kind of <laughs> that um, which, you know, feels current enough. But even in the past eight years, it's changed a lot. That's incredible. And like Autumn said, I just love and the cover is I'm always about book design and like the actual book structure. And it's like that foam green and the texture on the cover is so beautiful. And, you know, I love. I love how that it's, that's how accurate that is, that it's actually the skyline of, of when the story is set. That is just, that is the coolest factoid. I'm just going to tell everyone now when I talk about it. Yeah, and actually, that image is a photo. Can you believe it? That is amazing. Like, much kudos to your, you know, cover designer. She's great. I was very, very pleased when I saw this in my inbox. Now I'm like, I really, I literally just reached over and pulled my copy of the book to look at it some more closely. <laughs> That that's amazing. Anyway, we're so distracted now. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, like you said, most Americans, I being one, don't know a ton about China except from what we get from the media or <laughs> our textbooks, which aren't always that great and those kinds of things. But I really loved how like the city had personality too, and I, I keep thinking about how like when Sunny goes with the driver, when she yeah. goes with him to the different the different bars when 
well, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but when she goes with him, like, to these different bars in the city and, like, the different areas of the city, that was one of my favorite parts, actually, in on reflecting, just because of, like, the different aspects that you see and how each of the different areas had a personality, which was just really yeah. delightful. Well, that was one of uh, the most fun parts to write for me because I was thinking, you know, which parts of nightlife am I going to include? And those scenes were based off of real experiences that I have had. And I think that Shanghai nightlife is definitely something to be experienced. But there's just so many different cultural groups there now, and they all spend their nights in different ways. So yeah, that was that part was really interesting for me to write as well. So switching gears a little bit, I did have a question I really wanted to ask, and I'm going to try to ask it without spoilers, which... I feel it's very difficult, um, but you write a lot about the topic of love, especially in relation to arranged marriages, and it's throughout the story and mostly from the perspective of Lena. So what drew you to this topic, um, especially knowing that, you know, part of your audience was going to be Western or an American audience? And how did you, again, try not to say spoilers. So what was your thought process in how you unraveled that story, part of the story? Well, I... I'll begin by saying I didn't set out to write a love story. It's funny because it's funny to, to, to sort of think about the story I wrote and, and how much of it was intentional. But I, I think that that love story is one that sort of just maybe was lurking in the back of my mind and, and sort of I, I found interesting. And I'm not really sure how it came to be, but I do think that it became clear to me that what each of the characters were struggling with were trying to understand um, and trying to accept and trying to give different forms of love. So once I acknowledged that, I really wanted to explore different types of love, different types of family love and brotherly love and romantic love. So that did become a point of exploration for me, I guess. I think that's just so fascinating because I think oftentimes when we hear love stories, we think romance stories, but they're often different types of love. I mean, you have, as you mentioned, you know, brotherly love, familial love, um, friendship and love and friendship. And those are also love stories, but I just don't think that's what we think, you know, the image that comes to mind. I love how you explored those different types. Yeah. And also motherly love. And I think that there's also different types of love that you can have for one person, even if they occupy a particular relationship in your life, whether mm-hmm. they're your partner or, you know, your daughter. I mean, you wouldn't have romantic love with your daughter, but <laughs> you can be friends with your daughter in a kind of way. And I think one of the points of tension between Lena and Sunny is that I think that she sees her, um, IE becoming closer with her daughter um, in a way that she maybe isn't anymore. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And Sunny, I I mean, I keep coming back to Sunny, but she's such a great character that brought. She's a character that b- brought such great perspective to the story, and her take in particular on the Jin family was really interesting to me and especially like speaking of relationships like how her relationship with the family and the way she thinks about the family shifts throughout the story mm-hmm. as Kendra said you know a lot of you know the, the stories we have here in America about love and romance and those kinds of things are you know very a uh, bachelor-esque kind of a thing mm-hmm. and so <laughs> this this concept of an arranged marriage um, is really fascinating to me and 
I know that Lena struggles in the story with, and there's people telling her, her friends are saying like, well, why would you want to do this? You know, this is a modern country or whatever. Is that something that's still really prevalent still or not so much anymore? I would say yes and no. I think that there, what's pre- what's still prevalent is this idea that, you know, family life is the most important thing and continuing your family line. So on the one hand, you know, you have these, I don't know if meat market is the right term, but if you go to a public park on a Sunday, you'll see a lot of mothers, you know, convening with handouts, flyers with their son or daughter's information on it, tight weight job. So um, trying to set them up with people. And I think that is sort of a, a, a relic of a, a, a cultural relic, relic passed down from, I guess, however many decades ago, the idea of matchmaking and uniting families based on um, socioeconomic class. So there's that. But at the same time, I don't know, things are changing too. I, I think, you know, for the most part, people do find their own partners. But I do think that for Lena, during the time where she made the decision to get married to Wei, one thing that was really important to her and to her generation is just the opportunity. And um, at the time, America meant everything mm-hmm. to a certain set, you know, educated Chinese people. I find I find that really interesting. And I love learning about different cultures and different family aspects as well. And just how that works now, I guess, in the modern sense, because, you know, cultures are always changing. And that's just a beautiful thing to watch and and learn about. So another question we had was, um, Wei and Lena seemed to have everything that their parents wanted for them. Speaking of family relations, you know, they were living in America, they returned home wealthy, but they still aren't happy. And they still seem to think that they've disappointed their families. So what does their unhappiness say about their parents' expectations for their children? And how does that interact with the thing that you were just talking about, how family lines and caring for your family is the most important in their culture? Yeah, so I think that that's something unique about Lena and Wei's not generation, but specific set of young people in China who moved to America for grad school, because that's the sort of supportive family you know, what What does that mean anymore? I think that traditionally the idea of supporting your family is that you get the best job that you can, whether that means one, the one that makes the most money or that furthers your sort of social standing. And for them, it ends up meaning abandoning their parents. So I don't think that they necessarily knew what they were suggesting when they had their kids go over to America, except that, you know, America is a land of opportunity. Um, and I think their homecoming is sort of coming to terms with the fact that that may not have been the right decision. So I, I don't, yeah, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough question to answer. I, I'm not, I'm not sure that they actually carried out their parents' plan for them in the way that perhaps it was intended to be carried out. That's really interesting to think about too, especially in relation to the fact that it seems like when Wei and Lena come back from America, they really don't seem to fit in much of anywhere. And I know it seemed to me in the story that Lena in particular really struggled with that, not knowing like where she fit in society anymore. Um, but it's also interesting, too, that they seemed to almost make the same decision that their parents made in sending their daughter to the U.S. to go to school. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's sort of a 
I think Way even says at some point in the book, well, what was that all for if, if yeah. we're not having it in America? And I think it's sort of him trying to sort of, the opposite of cutting his losses, I guess, trying to make something of it. It's not necessarily the right decision, I think. What you're saying about their experience coming back to China as being kind of alienating is something that I wanted to write about um, and that I wrote about intentionally. So Mm -hmm. my parents had a very similar experience where they had lived in the U.S. for a number of years and both had careers here and then they moved back for work to Shanghai. And I remember within the first couple of years of going back there, I was with my mother and we were um, at a kind of a smoothie stand or juice place. And I, and the signs were in Chinese and my Chinese is, Chinese is not great. Um, especially in terms of reading, I can't read very much. And I asked her, I was like, what is that fruit? And I pointed to it and it was some Chinese characters. And she said, you know, I'm not sure. And mm. it blew my mind. And this, you know, this is her first language. And Chinese is easier to forget in terms of how it's written because it's not phonetically spelled. But I just, I sort of felt for her in that moment because now she's sort of imperfect in both languages. And for me, as a writer, you know, language is everything to me. And it's kind of the way that I form my identity. And so I just, I really felt for her in that moment because I thought she must feel so... Unstable isn't the right word, but she must feel at a loss in some way. Yeah, and that's something that really struck me in the book is how, like, when they move back, that uh, they're no longer just Chinese. They they were also American, and it's like they're no longer going to fit in either place perfectly. It's like they're right. they're part of both places now. It reminded me of like an Americana. Uh, that was the term of you know Nigerian people who you know had gone to America and, and different things, and it kind of reminded me of that of returning to China and then being, well, you, you're the people who went to America and just not fitting in after that. Right. Right. And I, it's interesting that you say that it's been a while since I read Americana, but I do remember that about the book. And I think it's something common for people who live these lives that are sort of bi-continental. And I can say for sure that when I am in America, I feel much more Chinese and when I am in China, I feel so much more American, and um, my identity is sort of split bet- between the two countries. Hmm. That's really fascinating. I think too, and I know I keep talking about her, but clearly, Sunny very resonate. R- Sunny resonated <laughs> with me a lot. Um, but she too, like, it's not just the Jens. Like, she also kind of struggles with living in Shanghai and like this expectation of. Well, just for context for the listeners, like, you know, she comes to Shanghai to make money to send home to her family after a series of unfortunate events. And she, too, doesn't seem to, like, really fit. And she has a similar experience where she goes from being a housekeeper to being this nanny. And so she also has the same struggle. So it's interesting to see the contrast that it's not restricted to a specific class either as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that it, that's definitely true of all the characters in the book where they all feel a little bit lonely because they feel they're supposed to be doing something they haven't been. Mm-hmm. And is also my favorite because she's the one who, you know, has come to Shanghai because she really didn't fit back home. And even though there isn't a role for her in Shanghai that fits exactly, she's sort of on her way to finding one that maybe could. Mm-hmm. Was she a character that you planned on having from the very 
beginning or did she come out of the story as you were writing it? She was where the story began. I, the first, so my, this novel started as a short story and it started as, I want to say it's chapters one, three, and five, which are all from Sunny's point of view. It's when Mm -hmm. she is accused of, you know, not her particularly, but she and Rose are accused of stealing the bracelet. I think back when it was a short story, it was just her. And so from the very beginning, her voice was there and her perspective was one that I was really interested in because I sort of spent two years watching the relationship between the hotel staff in that, that worked for the hotel that my parents lived in and also the residents and the drivers and everyone in that sort of community. And I was particularly interested in migrant workers. Actually, there was one, um, she was a waitress in in the hotel that my family lived in. My, she was my age. So at the time, she was 22 years old. She had all, already had a kid and she had a family back home and she was working, you know, seven days a week to send money back home. And I just was, you know, her, we were the same age and our experiences were so different. And I became kind of obsessed with understanding how she lived. And um, so I had, you know, a series of informal interviews with her. And her background informed much of the character that Sunny became. Hmm. That's really cool. Well, she was, like I said, she was one of my favorite characters, if not my favorite character. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I really loved her. We, we could keep talking about your, your book, but I'm sure we would veer way off into spoiler territory. We want to make sure that our listeners can hear this so that way they'll buy your book. But we always like to ask our guests who we have on the podcast, like who some of their favorite female authors are. Okay. Um, where do I even start? So I'll, I'll name two of my favorites that I think uh, maybe not, people might not necessarily know about. Daniel Evans is a brilliant short story writer who wrote a collection called Before You Suffocate Your Own Full Self. And they're just so funny and so, I don't know, she just, it, her stories feel incredibly intimate. And um, they get to the experience of being a woman extremely accurately. And um, I also love Joanne Beard, who is more known for her nonfiction, but she wrote a novel called In Zanesville, which is about it's it's about a couple, uh, two girls sort of growing up, but the way that she uses language and the way that both Daniel Evans and Joanne Beard are able to so keenly get to the get to the heart of what makes humans human and all the quirkiness, the weirdness that comes out of their interactions with one another, I just found really compelling when I read for the first time, and I go back to it again and again, even when I'm teaching classes. And then more recently, I can tell you about the books that I've read so far this year that I've really loved. All of them are by women. So I loved The Immortalist, which I know that you are both fans of. Yes. Um, (laughs) That book, I mean, it was just one of the ones where I read it so quickly in a very busy time period in my life. And as I was reading, and I couldn't put it down, and I just kept thinking, I have to read this again because I'm missing so much so many great one-liners and so many great, wise, underlinable sentences um, mm-hmm. because I can't wait to finish it. So it's just, it's really good literary read and it's a really great fast-paced page turner as well. So I love that one. 
And I loved The Friend by Sigrid Nunez, which is um, very different. It's uh, a slim, meditative, utterly charming, extremely wise, sort of sad book about a dog. I'm sorry. It's not about a dog. It sort of is. It's about a um, the, the narrator has lost one of her best friends to suicide, and she happens to inherit his dog. And it's about the relationship between the dog and the narrator and the dead friend. But it's much better than I'm making it seem. I don't know. I kind of would have added to my list. I know. I'm like, <laughs> where is it? this? It's amazing, especially for people who love books, because it's so much about what it means to be a writer and sort of the, 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 the place that fiction sort of occupies in the world of letters, I suppose, and, and what that means for, for readers. So I really love that book. And let me think, what else did I love? I loved Red Clocks by Lainey Zumas. Uh, Lainey, mm-hmm. is that her last name? Lainey Zumas. I'm excited for a, a few books that are coming out this summer. One is released today. It's called Number One Chinese Restaurant by Lillian Lee. And um, nice. the two others are The Incendiaries by R.O. Kwan. Mm-hmm. And if you leave me by Crystal Hanakim. Yes, those are on our list as well. We're very excited for them. They're great. They sound. I mean, they sound absolutely amazing. I haven't gotten. I mean, they're sitting there looking at me, but I haven't. <laughs> I haven't had a chance to read them yet. Um, but it's good to know that all of the hype really is. They really do deserve it, and so we're, we're very excited about them. So we also want to ask you. Um, you know, what are you up to now? Are you working another book? Or are you? T- you mentioned teaching. Um, so what are you doing? Mm-hmm. So I am working on a, a second book, which I'm pretty excited about. I had gotten. I want to say two thirds. Uh, sorry, a third or half of the way through, and then I hit a huge roadblock. But I think I'm working my way over it. But I'm working on a second novel. It's about three young actresses growing up in Wisconsin and their journeys toward self-fulfillment and career success, et cetera. And um, I'm hoping to be working on that book in Wisconsin, which is where I will be moving to. I'm currently based in New York, and I'm moving to Wisconsin in the fall to take a fellowship at the University of Wisconsin Creative Writing Program, Wisconsin Institute of Creative Writing. So I will be teaching there for a year and working on my second novel. That sounds amazing. Thank you. We'll definitely um, be looking forward to that whenever it happens, and good luck on your move and all of that. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. We were really excited to read your book and really enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. It was such a pleasure. A wonderful time talking to Lucy, and I loved hearing the, her publishing story. And I didn't even know that it was first a short story. I know, really fascinating. Now I want to go back and read the short story and just to compare it to how it turned out in the novel. Because process, man, I'm all about the process. <laughs> We're so mechanically minded, uh, but I love also hearing about the origins of the cover and just about cultural identity and how kind of like what inspired the book. And I just love the way that she described the context so well, because for me, especially with an ADB novel, I want to know like where the book came from. And she did a good job with that. Yeah, absolutely. So that's it for this show. We would like to say thank you to Lucy Tan for talking to us about her novel, What We Were Promised, which is out now by Little Brown. And you can find her on Instagram at Lucy R. Tan and on her website, LucyRTan.com. And we'll have links to that in our show notes so you can easily find her online. 
And as for us, you can find Reading Women on social media at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at KD Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. So thank you all so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Bye guys.